Good morning, everyone. I kind of have a growly thing going on. It's Kara's fault, my daughter, I think. She gave it to me. <laughs> okay. Um, I brought a lot of things. It looks like it's a lot. It's really not that much, but um, in case I forget, this is a Jewish prayer shawl called a talit, and um, they were asking me what it means, and I just quickly looked it up on Google. <laughs> not that I'm so brilliant, but um, <clears throat> I'll tell you what it means. The the Kabbalah says that the the talit is a metaphor of God's infinite, transcendent light. And the fringes and the um, knots, they represent the 630 do's and don'ts in the law. But they also represent the divine light in creation. So there's a lot of symbolism, and they, they put them on their heads when they pray over their hair. Um, I read recently that the, if the Jewish people had one book to save out of the Hebrew Bible, it would be Esther. And this is because despite the persecution and even destruction of them during their long history through the diaspora and um, all the deportations. In the book of Esther, they have an example of Israelites who not only survived but prevailed. So they love that book. Um, and you know Esther averts a, a complete massacre of the Jews, indirectly saving the lives of Ezra and Nehemiah, who we um, will study today and next week. So I tell you this to say that I wonder if the book of Ezra would be the second book that they would pick. And here's why, not for its beauty or kindness, but because it is the beginning of the Jews' intense and powerful uh, loyalty to Yahweh, to Jehovah, <clears throat> the Lord God of Israel, the one God, and to the Torah and the law, and the land of Israel. This is all in Ezra, and that's who we're studying today. Because you see, Ezra is the beginning of modern Judaism which starts now and goes all the way through and was there in Christ's time. So the book of Ezra raises some questions that are really quite thought-provoking, um, especially for Mormons and especially in this day and age when everything is relative, right? <clears throat> so hopefully it will make us think and I can't say I have all the answers. Um, the only one who has all the answers is up there, our Heavenly Father. Um, but this passionate loyalty to one God only and to the law, the Mosaic law, um, actually began 
during Judah's 50 years in exile in Babylon. Something happened to Judah and the other Israelites during those years of captivity when they turned away from worshiping idols and multiple gods and directed themselves to the one God. So did they all of a sudden see the light and um, not turn to idols? Because that was a problem from their earliest days. Or did the trauma and the, the pain of exile and the ad adversity throw them together? You know, that is often the case. And they, did they thrive on being the underdog and become zealous and protective of their faith? Does this ring a bell to anybody with our own history? Because it should. Um, I've seen it happen with my own children when my daughters have lived away for years and have had to survive on their own without me. <laughs> and f f friends become important and wards become important. Um, and in my daughter Lissa's case, her work became important. So William James, the great philosopher and psychiatrist, said something <clears throat> that has in intrigued me for years. And I'll read the whole quote and you can see if you agree with it. It is indeed a remarkable fact that sufferings and hardships do not as a rule abate the love of life. They seem, on the contrary, usually to give it a, a keener zest. And the sovereign source of melancholy is repletion. Re repletion means to be completely full, right? Everything's just great and full. This is still William James. Need and struggle are what excite and inspire. Our hour of triumph is what brings the void. <clears throat> so maybe we all need a little more repletion, and maybe we need a little more need and struggle, and certainly more hours of triumph, in my case anyway. So whether you agree or not that need and struggle do not um, dampen the love of life, that is what happened to Judah. That is exactly what happened. Um, because during the exile, they had, I mean, they basically, their previous lives were like gone. They had lost their temple, their city. Um, they were living in a land that Amos calls polluted or unclean. Um, their whole sacrificial system um, was suspended so everything was new and gone but they could still maintain their sabbaths their dietary laws just think of Daniel in Babylon circumcision they could still do <clears throat> but what happened was instead of all 
the other things they develop this increased love of the law and prayer because that is what they could do and also an interest in the past because this is when somewhere in the mix of all these people that were deported there were those responsible for compiling and writing the books of the Old Testament so d during this time is when Kings was written in Chronicles and when they got back to Jerusalem the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and, Ez and Esther and probably Malachi and all the others so it was a, a great uh, a creative time um, do you know what papyrus is if you do raise your hand I'm sure you all do so on our trip recently I we went to this place and they they taught us how they make it so if I can get it out um, so this is what most of the books were, were written on. Um, so it's from a plant, the papyrus plant, which looks a lot like this, which it's not really papyrus, but anyway. So here's this, this piece they made as we watched, and they, they take the pith of the plant and they lay it all one way in strips, wet, and then they lay it all opposite, you know, 90 degree way, and because it's wet, the natural glue, and then they, they press it, makes it stick together, so you can see the lines in it, and then they let it dry, and they write on it. So here's one written on that my husband bought. This was in Egypt, but um, you can see how it's written on. So it's very f fragile, as you know. So most of the books um, written on this had to be, be copied over and over again until they started writing on them in parchment, which was dried leather. So, um, so that's just off the topic, but I thought you'd be interested. Um, this is what the scrolls were. You always hear about the scrolls, right? And then after a while, they started making them in pages, and they were called codexes, like we have today. So, the book of Ezra. So, open to the book of Ezra. It's page 634, and it comes right after Chronicles. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah are named for people, not the authors. And anciently, they were um, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book, one scroll, and they were not split until about 200 A.D. So you can see you could see why some of the narrative in Ezra spills over into Nehemiah. Um, in fact, many people think that um, the books of Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah were all one book. Because if you look, if you look at the last, so if, if you're open to your book, look at the last um, two verses of Chronicles, and 
the f f first three verses of Ezra. In fact, let's read them, the um, Ezra 1, 1 through 3. <clears throat> now in the first year of S Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might be fulfilled by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he put it in writing. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem and build the house. So if you look up, it's almost word for word, um, the end of Chronicles. So um, both Ezra and Nehemiah, which is right after is, and is like a sequel, sort of, are about events that occur in Israel at the time of the return from exile in Babylon and then the next about a hundred years and the first six chapters of Ezra are not actually about Ezra he doesn't come until chapter seven fifty years later but it is about the re return of a small group under Shez Bazar which is in verse eight and then the main group is in out with Zerubbabel, as we learned in Haggai and Zechariah. So that's kind of the background. Even without Ezra, though, in these first six chapters, you can see this major shift happening in Jewish thought that started in the exile um, beginning to happen. And this book of Ezra, I, I don't know if you were able to look at it, but it is so interesting because it has all these different um, sources in it. It has official Persian degrees, decrees and letters. It has um, lists of people, and it has Ezra's journals. It'll switch from third person to all of a sudden you hear Ezra speaking. So as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, um, and as you just read, the, the king, I put him way down there, the king, because he's not really that big a part of the story. <laughs> he sends back all the captives that the Babylons had deported, and this includes Judah. And they go home, and not all of them go home. A lot stayed in Babylon, and for the next 1,500 years, it becomes a great center of Jewish culture. Um, so as you can see, the diaspora is happening. But when they get back to Israel, you know, you think, oh, so great, but everything is not the same. In fact, everything is way different. Everything is smashed and burned. But also, they are subjects now of the Persian king. They're not in an independent country. 
um, they're, they're extremely poor, and they're surrounded by these hostile populations, which becomes a big part of the story in Ezra and Nehemiah. And also a big thing was happening. The prophets, the, the time of the prophets is, en- is ending. In fact, really has ending, because mo- has ended. Most people think Malachi came in between Ezra and Nehemiah. So when the main group comes with Zerubbabel, they build an altar. So three in one, you can see, of Ezra. They gathered themselves uh, uh, together as one man and then stood up Joshua and Zerubbabel and the priests and built the altar of the God of Israel. So they start, they make a little effort, they build the altar where it used to be in the middle of all the rubble. But then something happens. What happens? Does anybody know? This really sad thing happens. Well, becomes sad. I'll tell you. <laughs> the Samaritans offer to help. <laughs> so look at um, chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Now, when the adversaries, which means, which this was written, all this was written at least 100 years later, So they look back, and then they can call them the adversaries, right? Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then they they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, and we sacrifice unto him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assur, which brought us up hither. So the Samaritans come. You know about the Samaritans. In fact, it explains it here that when the king of Assyria took away the northern kingdoms, that's when they were lost, right? The, the ten tribes. He brings back other peoples into Judah, into Israel, to, you know, till the ground, to be there. And so they start, they live there, and they they begin to intermarry with the Jews that were left, because they didn't all go, and they become the Samaritans. So um, the Samaritans accepted the Pentateuch, the five books of the Bible, Israel. So in many ways, they were essentially Jewish. They thought they were Jewish. Um, They thought they had this common interest. And so they are making an apparently sincere offer to help build the temple. Um, But look what happens, verse 3. Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of them said unto them, You have nothing to do with us to build a house unto our God. But we ourselves together will build it unto the Lord God of Israel. 
as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, hath commanded us. <clears throat> so the Jews used that royal edict to exclude them, believing that the Samaritans did not know how to properly worship. And that they also had some cause because the Samaritans did not worship Jehovah alone. They kind of in included their other gods, you know. So the beautiful heart that you find in Ruth is not here, is it? They were ignoring that. And the amazing, you know, teachings we get from Jonah are not here, that God wants all of his children to be saved, not just the Jews. Um, so instead, you see the exclusiveness and the beginning of the hedge around the law, which is why I brought my hedge. My, it's, it's also called the fence around the law. Um, so here in verse 4 is the bitter harvest, Ezra 4 and 4. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building, and they hired, which means they bribed, counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus king of Persia, even into when Darius reigns. So the result was that the refusal to let them help provoked the Samaritans to anger and revenge. Um, the Samaritans make ac accusations about them to the king, accusing them of re rebellion and sedition, and the building is stopped for about 20 years. It stopped until Haggai and Zechariah come, which we learned about a couple weeks ago, and begin prophesying. And then they take their case all the way to Darius, who lets them start building again. And I won't s stop on that, but it's a really interesting story. Look over in 4 and 24. Then ceased the work of the house of God. It all stops. So, provoke, that powerful and descriptive word, appears quite a few times in the scriptures. The one that I've always loved is the one that, where Paul uses it. He, talks, he uses it in Ephesians, but also in uh, Colossians, where he says, 3 and 21, Fathers, and I add mothers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. So, don't make, so I'm going to stop on this a minute. Don't make your, your children angry and discouraged and disheartened. You see it all the time everywhere, don't you? Parents yelling at their children, and you see their little faces. And I know children can be difficult. I have five amazing, beautiful children. Um, but the, the times I regret the most 
or when I made them angry. Oh, I, I can't get them out of my head even. And some I made more angry than others. <laughs> I was once, I have told this story once, oh, but I was running in our, on our mission around our herb, which was a little group of, you know, a neighborhood <clears throat> in Puerto Rico. And you, you, you know what it's like in a tropical place. There is a lot of noise all the time. There's wind and there's birds and the trees are going and, you know, and I'm running around this little park and uh, really early in the morning and way up above me, um, all of a sudden I can hear a man screaming at a child. Um, so the houses were like up in the park and here's what happened. It was the most amazing thing. Everything got quiet, absolutely still. There was no birds, there were no um, wind, there was nothing. And in the, the Doctrine and Covenants, I have it at the end here. This is what it says in DNC 38, 11, and 12. The powers of darkness prevail upon the earth among the children of men in the presence of the hosts of heaven, which causes silence to reign and all eternity is pained. That's exactly what happened. I looked it up after, in fact, I'd been reading it, I think. Silence reigns and all eternity is pained. And that comes from anger. So, this situation with the Samaritans was 2,400 years ago. Would things have been different in Palestine if the Jews had accepted the Samaritans' help? There is a question. And yet, <laughs> Here's where there are really many answers. And yet, here's a long question. In this difficult situation of these exiles returning, surrounded by different races and cultures and people, would their great heritage of prophetic and ethical religion have been preserved without the protection and the hard boundaries that are in both Ezra and Nehemiah, and even in Esther and Daniel, would they have survived? Would Judaism and the law and the prophets that um, have survived the flood of Greek influence that was about to hit them, survive the centuries between the Old Testament and the New Testament, when they were surrounded all the time by hostile neighbors, ruled by strangers, without the shell that Ezra provided. So, would, ha would Israel have been there for Jesus of Nazareth to be born into? For Paul to come and really begin Christianity when he went out to the Gentiles? 
That's the question. <laughs> so, Kara, uh, my daughter, was in Jerusalem at the BYU Center, and they had a Palestinian professor come in. This was in 1995, so that his job was to teach them um, about Palestine from an, a Palestinian point of view, an Arab point of view. So with great affection, he quotes in this speech I have a copy of, she gave me, he quotes President Hunter, Howard Hunter, in a speech that President Hunter gave at BYU called All Are Alike Unto God, and I wanted to read you part of it. So this Palestinian man is quoting Howard Hunter, who was his good friend. So here's the quote. As members of the Lord's Church, we need to lift our vision beyond personal prejudice. So I'm, I'm quoting President Hunter. I just want to be clear. We need to discover the supreme truth that indeed our Father is no respecter of persons. Sometimes we unduly offend brothers and sisters of other nations by assigning exclusiveness to one nationality of people over another. Let me cite as an example of exclusiveness the present problem in the Middle East, the conflict between the Arabs and the Jews. We do not need to apologize nor mitigate any of the prophecies concerning the Holy Land. We believe them and de declare them to be true, but this does not give us justification to dogmatically pronounce that others of our father's children are not children of the promise. So um, just quickly, I'll, I'll tell you, once when my husband was bishop, he, he, one of his friends was past, the pastor of the Presbyterian Church up here, and he would, and uh, Pastor Hilleman would have John come in and um, talk to them in his, his class that he had about living amongst the Mormons. So John was the, the token Mormon who would go in and answer their questions. The problem was that Jeff Silliman, who was our friend, but he would prep them, the stinker. And so this one mo uh, Sunday morning, John was bishop, and he was supposed to go over and talk to them, and he had this event happen at our ward, and he said, you're going to have to go. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, because I'd been with him, and it was terrifying. So, <laughs> but I had to go. There was, like, no one else. So I go in, and they are prepped, and they are after me, and it was not friendly. <laughs> and the main thing, my main point, I don't want to go on about it, was there was a woman there who was so angry she had not been able to go into her daughter's wedding in the Salt Lake Temple. And it, you know, it hit me, blind, blindsided me, and I had to do my best. Um, speaking of um, loving all of God's children, how do you answer that, you know? But back to Ezra. 
I feel like I'm putting the cart before the horse. We haven't even met Ezra yet. But in chapter 5, work on the the temple starts up again. Um, Verse 1, then the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, whom we talked about two weeks ago, uh, come and then and they begin to prophesy and then rose up Zerubbabel and Joshua and the others and begin to build the house of God at Jerusalem. They inspired them and they helped them get permission from Darius again. But you know, even though they had that that permission, it's really the in, in I love that word indomitable faith of Israel that did it. I mean, they just keep on going. And that's expressed over in chapter 6, 16, when they dedicate the the temple four and a half years later. They dedicate it with joy. And then over 16 and 22, and kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy for the Lord had made them joyful. They're so happy to have their their temple back. Um, So I don't have a lot of time, but I wanted to tell you about the Philadelphia temple. And I'll just be quick, but the temple was announced in 2008. This is from an article in the BYU um, magazine that comes out, you know by Dean Davies. Anyway, so uh, President Monson announces it will be built and the his people go and they look at um, sites and they have one that they really feel strongly about. They were sure it was the right one. But then the city of Philadelphia says, no, we want that for our for businesses or our hotel. We'll get, you know, bigger taxes from that and all that. So as a last-ditch effort, five of our LDS people go to see the mayor. And one of them is Vi Sikahema. Do you know who he is? He was a BYU football player and also played for the, the NFL team in Philadelphia. So he's still there. He's a sports announcer and he goes with them and he's kind of a celebrity in Philadelphia. So they walk into the meeting and they know immediately that the atmosphere is cold. It's not looking good. And and they're confused. You know, they're, they were positive. This is where it was supposed to be. Um, so the mayor says, no, you're going to have to look for another site, and then um, they're all praying, you know, like like crazy inside. And then Vi Sukehema stands up and says, "May I speak?" And they say yes, because they know who he is and they like him. And these are his exact words, Mr. Mayor. Many years ago, when I was a young boy in Tonga, my father and mother and brothers and sisters sold our home. We sold fruits and vegetables and we sold everything that we could have, that we had to have enough money to travel to Hamilton, New Zealand to be sealed as an eternal family in the temple. You need this temple. 
this temple will bless your city. This temple will bless your uh, uh, community. It will bless the people. And then he sat down. And there was quiet, and everything changed. And a non-member city councilman spoke up, saying, we need this temple. And, and the whole thing switched. And they said, OK. And then even at the end of the meeting, the mayor asks to have a prayer, which is not done, right? So God's spirit is so powerful. It can do anything. Look what it did. It helped the Jews, outnumbered, downtrodden, get building again. And it will help you and me fight our battles if we turn to him. So Ezra chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, and that means 50 years later. That's how they say and then verse 6. Then Ezra, we meet Ezra. Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a, a ready scribe of the law. And ready means, um, it means prepared. It means skilled. Um, let's see, experienced. He was a ready scribe in the law. So the scribes in the exile, as I um, began, began to, to, to claim authority to teach the Torah. We don't know how that happened, that it kind of evolved from the priests to the scribes, but it did. And maybe it was because they were preserving and um, compiling the scriptures. But these scribes were the forerunners of the influential scribes during Jesus's time the ones he was always so mad at you know um, and later generations of scribes idealized Ezra he was the scribe so somehow Ezra who was born and raised in Babylon got permission from our heart the king of Persia now for him and whoever else wanted to come back to Israel. And he not only got that permission, but, they actually, but the king actually uh, commissioned him to bring the Jews into obedience with the Jewish law. So that was the law of the land. So look at 7 and 14. For as much as thou art sent of the king to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of thy God which is in thine hand. And 15, he was also to carry back the, the gold and silver which the king of Babylon had stolen out of the, the temple. So that's what Ezra did. He goes back and he begins the study and the, the teaching of the law, making a hedge around the law. So it's easy to be negative about Ezra. And actually, most people are that you, when you start reading. But he was something, I'll tell you. Devout, zealous, passionate, strong of faith, 
rigid, um, strong principles, a man of great influence. Look at verse 10. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and, and judgments. So he was obviously the ideal Jewish scribe who studied the law. He f figured out its everyday implications in your lives, you know, and then he taught it. But I think he was also a man of God, a grounded man that a, a king could trust to go back all by himself and do this. A man of great moral authority. And such men and women, I might add, are rare. So verse eight, uh, 15 of chapter 8, Ezra says, and now he's in the first person, I, I gathered them uh, together. He looks, he sees there aren't enough priests, so he's, he makes more priests come. They probably didn't want to come. <laughs> and then in verse 21, he calls a fast for help with the long journey because he had boldly told the king, we don't need your help, we have our God. But he's got all this gold and silver, and I don't know who, but somebody figured out in today's money it would be worth over two million dollars. So he's going across Arabia where there are caravans and pirates and you know with all of this stuff and so they they fast and pray <laughs> and um, he gets there safely after four months they take the vessels and of the gold and silver to the temple and then comes a crisis. This is the next big um, uh, crisis in our lesson. <laughs> and that is intermarriage. When he gets there, look at 9 and 3. <clears throat> Actually, yeah, just over the page. Actually, go up to um, 2. The... When, when he gets there, after he's been there a couple days, the people come to him, the rulers or whoever, and say, we have a big problem for our rulers and the priests and a lot of the men have taken of their daughters for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed has mingled themselves with people of the lands. So there's been a lot of intermarriage. And what does Ezra do? Verse 3. When I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle. I plucked off the hair of my head and my beard, and I sat down astonished, which means astonished. Um, and then in verse 5 at the end, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord God like this. So here's a question. How do you persuade someone, say your child, or a relative, or a friend, to do what you want them to do? It's a big question if you're a parent. <laughs> How do you persuade? Because um, this is going to be Ezra's problem, right? Um, my daughter, Lissa, 
was my hard child. We, everyone has one. I know you do, so don't pretend you don't. No, just kidding. Lisa was <clears throat> hell on wheels. I know it's being recorded, but I'll just say it. So Lisa would stick, my husband's told this story, but Lisa would stick a three-ring binder under her door because she couldn't lock the door, so we couldn't get in. It worked very effectively. And so when we would have family prayer at night, she would stick in the binder. And so she, you know, nobody could make her come up. Um, and my husband was getting madder and madder about it day after day. So it's not that she was doing anything bad in there. She was just studying for one of her 50 AP classes, you know, in, I'm just joking, in math, you know, because she's now a doctor, and she started in eighth grade to be a doctor. <laughs> anyway, but I said to him, and it's not that it was me, because at other times he said to him, me about her other things, but I said to him, if you keep doing that, being mad, we're going to lose her. And he, so instead, he would go down and at first stand outside her door and read one verse of scripture and then walk away. After a while, she started letting him in and he'd sit down on the bed and read one and then he'd leave until she started laughing about it. And then she started coming up. So I know you try everything, I try everything. We even, would, we even hung $51 bills from her ceiling with a note on each one about how much of something that we loved about her. So my other kids that are here, they were perfect, of course. So. <laughs> okay, I gotta hurry along here. So <clears throat> every human being is different. Every child is different. We had to raise Lissa differently. We did. Um, there's a Bengali word, Abed. Let's see, Abed, that's it, Abed. I looked it up. Which means indivisible, impenetrable identity. Perhaps we would use the word soul, right? Soul. The abed of a human being is sacred. Um, do you persuade a difficult person by anger and force? Um, or do you use love? Love is much harder. Love takes longer, I think. Um, so anyway, Ezra is shaken by the news of the intermarriage because he knows the entire community is at risk. It's what happened with Solomon marrying his foreign wives and their worship, and it had been a major factor in the destruction of Israel and Judah in the past. So what does he do? What does Ezra do? He turns the action inward against himself. He becomes one of them. And if we had time, I could read you King Benjamin's um, sermon where he talks about this. He says, 9 and 6, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God. So this is when he's down right on the ground. He's ripped his clothes. He's ripped off his hair. 
um, and he's praying. For our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass is grown up into heaven since the days of our fathers. So what is he doing? He's becoming one of them. He's not saying, you're bad, I'm good. Um, he, look over in Nehemiah, which is right next door to chapter 13 and 25. This is what Nehemiah does in the same situation. <laughs> Just This is for humor, because he was a great person. But he, he says, you got it? And I contended with them. And this is about intermarriage, too. And cursed them and smote them and plucked off their, their hair and made them swear by God. So he hits them and rips their hair out. <laughs> Whereas dear Ezra, Ezra's, he's, he's, he's taking their sin on himself. You know, I read somewhere that Ezra was a master of psychology, but I don't think he was manipulative. I don't think he was manipulating them. I think his grief was real, and he was a true person. And it's why he was so successful in his radical reforms. Um, maybe he could see down the future that they would be prone to idolatry as in the past, and they would be surrounded by hostile people. Um, so he doesn't harangue them with hellfire and damnation. He weeps and grieves in front of them. They're all surrounding him. I, I could tell you a story about my husband with his, his own f father when he was making a bad choice. And everyone was getting mad at him. And, and then he, he looks at his father. He's weeping. And it just changed everything like that. So it's a sad thing that Ezra insists they must do to fix the situation. They have to put away their f f foreign wives and children. And it took them months. So hopefully they took care of them. But to our modern mind, that's a really uncomfortable thing, isn't it, to do? And if I could just say, I think we have some of these same issues going on today. Do we ask, our, ask ourselves, how f far can I go and still be righteous? How far can I push the boundaries? Do we even need boundaries? You remember Tevya in Fiddler on the Roof? He's right over there on the roof. That's my mom's. <laughs> well, remember he goes back and forth saying, on the one hand, but on the other hand, on the one, you know how he does that. And then his daughter is about to marry outside the faith. And he says, on the one hand, there is no other hand. No, Chava, no. So the Jews, really beginning with Ezra, developed this burden of the law as a means of salvation. Um, go with me quickly to Matthew 19. <clears throat> this is Jesus and the rich young man, which I know you've read 
100 or, or 200 times. <laughs> but let's read it just one more time. So in 19 of Matthew and 16, behold, one came and said to him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I might have eternal life? Jesus says, verse 17 at the end of the verse, keep the commandments. And then, here's my point. What does the young man say? He saith unto him, which, which commandments do I do? So, the young man is living Ezra's law. Um, he wants to know which commandments he has to do. He wants specifics, so he needs what he so he knows what he needs to do to be righteous. Um, that's what Ezra tried to give his people. It's not such a bad thing. We all need certain boundaries, don't we? But I don't have have time to have you read this. But what um, compare it with what King? Lamoni does and Aaron. Um, I'll remind you, this is in Alma 22:15. if you want to look. The king says to Aaron, what shall I do that I may have this eternal life? Does this sound familiar? <laughs> of which thou hast spoken. What do I do to be born of God, having this wicked, wicked spirit rooted out of my breast, and receive his spirit that I may be filled with joy, that I may not be cast off at the last day. It's almost like word for word, isn't it? Behold, said he, but here we have the difference. I will give up all that I possess. I will even forsake my kingdom, that I may receive this great joy. And what does Aaron tell him? Do you remember? See, King Lamoni's already offered everything he has and his kingdom. What more can he give? And Aaron says, not more laws, not which laws, but this. Bow down to repent and call on God's name in faith, believing. In effect, he's saying, break your heart. Break your heart for God and humble your spirit. And then the king says these most, maybe most beautiful words in all of scripture, which it's hard to say, but I will give away all my sins to know thee. That's what he had to do. That's the witch. Isn't that so beautiful? I will give away all my sins, and that's a hard thing, isn't it? We love our sins. So, for the, uh, I'll just end. Go to Nehemiah 8. And <clears throat> I'm in, in, intruding into next week, but this is about Ezra. And as I talked about, they're kind of fl fluid. They were about the same time. So in, this is our last glimpse of Ezra. And then he just disappears forever. And um, it probably should actually be back in Ezra, most people think. So look at 8, 1, and 3. The people have gathered themselves at the 
Watergate. So my daughter and I were looking up where was the Watergate because the names have all changed and it's by the Gihon Springs if you've been to um, Jerusalem by Hezekiah's Tunnel. So the, the people have all gathered and they built Ezra a platform, a wooden platform. Who else stands on a wooden platform and teaches? King Benjamin. Okay. And then Ezra reads them the book of the law. And all the people, verse 1 of Nehemiah 8, all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women. And it must have been unusual enough that they also said women were there. Um, and all that could hear with understanding, so that probably their older children came to. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from morning until midday. Um, and then in verse 5, he opened the book, and when he opened it, all the people stand up. And verse 7, oh, and verse 6, first they say amen, and they lift up their hands and bow down their heads. So they're all standing there as he reads. And um, then verse 7, Ezra and the priests begin to explain the law to them. Verse 8, so they read in the book in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And when the, the people heard it, they wept, verse 9. So, <clears throat> I have come to love and respect Ezra. He reminds me a lot of my father. I know that you all love your fathers too. Um, but my father did the same thing. He gave us the sense and caused us to understand the reading in the scriptures from when I was a child. I can still hear his beautiful voice in my head sometimes. <clears throat> so <clears throat> I think that Ezra knew that below the surface of these pages, in the Old Testament that we have spent two years almost on is a great deep chasm of intelligence and truth and a, a bottomless ocean of light. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Mm -hmm.